Welcome to The Cut on Tuesdays. On Thursday, I'm Stella Bugby, Editor-in-Chief of The Cut. Tumble out of bed and I stumble to the kitchen Pour myself a cup of ambition and yawn and stretch and try to come to life This is How I Get It Done, the Cut series about ambitious women and the way they live. How they deal with their inboxes, people's feelings, their grocery shopping, their morning routines. What do they know that we don't? What do they do that we can steal? It's part advice column, part love letter, and part voyeurism. Literally life hacking. In these conversations, we're going to try to learn pretty much everything we can about how our subjects manage their days and minds so that maybe, just maybe, we can live our own lives a little better. Today, we're talking with writer, actress, mom of three, and cancer survivor Jill Cardman. Jill wrote and starred in her own Bravo series, Odd Mom Out, for three seasons until it was canceled about a year ago. Doing her show meant that Jill was a first-time actress on screen with lots of scrutiny about her looks right as she was turning 40. And it meant that after having a flexible work life as a writer, she started working 18-hour days while raising her three kids. We get to all of that in this conversation. I started talking with Jill about the very first episode of Odd Mom Out because there was this one scene that I think any woman with young kids can relate to. She's in the kitchen being pawed by all her kids, and her husband comes over to give her affection, and it doesn't go over well. Are we having mac and cheese tonight? I said get dressed! Get dressed, please. I don't know. I think everything's holding up great. In fact, I was thinking, what if I went into work late today? Honey, I know it's your special day, but there was just a study at Stanford University that all these mothers have sensory overload because the kids are, like, pawing them all day, and so we're, like, ODing on touch, okay? And we have to pick that photo. You're like, get off of me! I'm overstimulated. Is that something that's still happening, or are your children... Not now, but when I had three kids in four years, like you, I think, and... I, I, there was so much physical stimulation, and I felt like a bitch because Harry would just, like, pat my butt or something. It wasn't, like, sexual or pussy-grabby. It was just, like, a cute thing. And I would, like, felt my back tighten. I wanted to be like, get the fuck off me. And then I felt really vindicated because there was this Stanford study saying that women of small children are, are like, overstimulated physically and prodded and poked. And in the pilot, it opens on my butt and my— son is poking my cellulite and that's real like the kids are just like why is your butt so jiggly and you're just being pawed and so when your husband is trying to express genuine affection he's kind of like the last one that you want because I felt like the kids sapped a lot of my sexual energy and I just didn't want a bone unless I had like three pinot noirs (laughs) is that still the case sometimes yeah (laughs) like if I'm really tired I just am not in the mood but I kind of just deal like, I just get the IV drip of Cabernet and do it. Because I feel like... What this kind is, of Cabernet? I am not discerning. <laughs> I would drink a box wine, but I'd rather have, like, the worst red wine over the best white wine. I only drink red wine. So for anybody who hasn't seen Odd Mom Out, how would you describe it? I think of it as kind of a peek into this world of Upper East Side stay-at-home moms. So it's not about parenting, even though mom is in the title. It's more about just keeping up, you know, lessons and tutors and just a lot of competitive yardsticking with their children or just are totally tuned out from their kids altogether and farm it out. I find it all kind of fascinating. 
Um, I think the moral of the story at the end is that if you even have one real friend that you can sit with in a diner and distill it all, there is no scene. The scene is in your head and what you might perceive to be, a, you know, a stressful kind of world, you can extract yourself from it and just make your own life. So when you started doing the show and suddenly you were starring in it and writing it? Yeah. Was it weird getting successful, you know, at an age at which many women, especially actresses, are finding fewer roles for themselves? Yes, because I had never been on camera. And so after season one, Bravo did focus grouping to decide whether to greenlight season two. And we had a really candid conversation, which was, you know, it's weird. It didn't really bother me. I tell my friends this and they're horrified for me, but they said, the audience thinks your hair's too thin and that your teeth are really bad. They focus group that before they greenlit the show. And they said, your teeth are too yellow. So we're going to pay for you to whiten them. And I said, well, I drink red wine and I drink coffee and that's, it's just going to go back. And they're like, well, try to be good like during production. So I did season one. No one commented about my yellow teeth, but they did say my hair was too thin and that my, um, that my teeth were really like snaggle tooth, really crooked. So I wound up getting Invisalign between season one and season two. So I got Invisalign. It totally straightened my teeth. The shit works. And then the first night of season two, someone wrote, I'm sad. I miss her old teeth. They had so much more character and now they're straight. And I was like, you know what? I can't win. Like that is in a nutshell acting in your 40s. Like they're going to find something. So I just, at that point I gave up, but I don't. I really don't care. Like, I really don't care about like that stuff. It's just like, if you know it's going to be a scene or they're going to take your picture or something, then I think about it more. But on a normal day, I don't really give a shit. Do you think it helped, though, having a whole full life behind you before even being on the camera to yes. give you perspective on how other people would judge you? A hundred percent marriage and family. I just feel like I don't know how a 22-year-old can like really come of age in that spotlight because if anything like that went down, I just went home and I had my people there. Like even when they canceled my show, I didn't cry. I was like, okay. I mean, it was all, I was so lucky to have it to begin with because at 39, you appreciate it. And like starting acting at 39 is so funny. I think it's so weird. What did you do the night that they canceled your show? Well, I, they, I got the call in the morning, and I remember that day being like, I'm sad. I, at the time, had already sold Munsters. And you were working on rebooting the Munsters. Yes. So I didn't feel down in the dumps because I I actually, this is so stupid now in retrospect, but I'm like, how am I going to do both shows? <laughs> I was like stressing. <laughs> and they were like, oh, Shonda Rhimes has six shows. Calm down. But I, was, I, I remember saying, I, I hope I'm not. You know, I hope I can. I'm cut out for doing two shows, but neither happened. So I was off the hook for that. So you went back to work after how many years of having been out of work? Well, I had my first kid, I had a book due. So I would just write while she was asleep in the Moses basket. I brought her with me traveling to promote the book. With one, it's easier. You can kind of picture it as you're not a family, you're just a couple with a baby. And that's kind of how we framed it for those three years. But I think it was really 
like season one of Odd Mom Out was really tough on our marriage because he was like, I'm doing everything. And I was sort of like, yeah, that's what I did for 11 years. Welcome to the jungle. Like, this is what I did. So he didn't fully get it until he was in that position. That was a huge adjustment for us, like for our marriage. But then I feel like I was working through my like motherhood, especially of three is kind of guilt management. And I was putting Harry below them because I felt like, well, I'm gone and I feel guilty about that. So I'm putting their needs above his. So how did you guys get over it? I think the shock was just season one. Just like parenthood, like zero to one is the hardest. And then one to two and two to three is easier. Zero to one TV show seasons was the hardest. Um, After that, he knew what to expect. When I came home, I really like made up for it and was really present with everybody. Because once you wrap the the shooting part, which was 10 weeks, the post-production is just like a nine to five job, which is actually less than most New Yorkers. I was nine to five. Like at 4.59, I was on the train home. Um, And then season two, I was mentally prepared this time. And I said, like, okay, 10 weeks, my parents are stepping up, my friends are stepping up. But again, the buck stops with the mom. So if there was an issue at school, they call me. They don't call Harry. And I was like, well, now I'm working 17 hours. Why don't they call the dad? Did you tell them to call Harry? I did. And how did they take that? I think that my daughter's school was totally fine with it. And my son's school, which was all boys, was very ill-prepared for that conversation. I think that they thought that was super weird. Did you keep him in that school? Nope. He's gone. Were you happy to say goodbye to that mentality? I was very happy. I want to talk a little bit about your life and your day. What do you do on a regular morning? Like, take me through your day. You wake up, you have your kids around. Okay, well, right now is really weird because I've been doing the Sirius XM show that we moved from noon to 6 a.m. So I get up at 4.30 on Mondays, and it's still dark out, and I'll see a rat out of the corner of my eye, and I have a panic attack. Like, I hate being up at that hour. But you know what? I just sort of thought to myself, this sucks, but weirdly, it's New York, and there's lights on and cars on the street, and there are plenty of people doing it. So that's on Mondays. The other days, um, I get up at 6.30. I read the New York Times. I get the kids ready for school and breakfast, and then my husband takes my son, and I take my daughter. In opposite directions? Opposite directions. And then depending on what my day looks like, I will try like two days a week to do Soul Cycle, which really does relax me. What do you wear to SoulCycle? Okay, so, you know, I don't wear pants. I only wear skirts. So that's the weird thing is I have to put my leg through a leg hole. I have leggings that have a huge lightning bolt down it. And then I have down the whole leg. And then I have ones with, like, these silver stars up the sides. And then those clog boots, fence. And then like a really asexual t-shirt. Like a lot of these girls wear either like a bra or a bra with a little bit of body on it, like a tank that's designed whatever for that where there's a boob holster slash tank. But I don't, I wear like my husband's t-shirt. Talk to me about your eye makeup because there was, I told somebody I was about to talk to you today and they were like, tell me about how she always has It's tattooed. Yeah, that's what I told them. I got it tattooed, but like when I put on eye makeup, I think I'm just really greasy, but it travels. So at the end of like a black tie night or something, I look like Alice Cooper shat on my face. It's all down here on my cheeks. And so I was just tired of it. And I said to my friend, how do you always have these perfect wing things. And she said, oh, it's tattooed. So I copied. How long ago did you do that? I started like six years ago and I've redone it twice. What else do you do for your upkeep? Okay. So much. I mean, so much. Um, This is really annoying and everyone's going to hate me, but I drink a lot of water. 
It's such a dumb. <laughs> it's such a dumb thing to say. I also I have like a bladder wine. size at a mommy bladder. So I mean, I literally pee all day long. Like I I pee every half hour. So, um, okay. What else do I do? I get a facial once a month. The thing about being forty four is, on a good day, you can look thirty eight. On a bad day, you can look a hundred and seventy three. Tell me a life hack. One life hack is a code language that I have with my kids. We developed a family code system, which I highly recommend to anyone listening. We have a whole code where, okay, I'll give examples. Um, we're sitting in a restaurant and people are listening to us clearly. Like, you know, those tables with banquettes. You know, in New York, we're all on top of each other. And if people are listening, they'll say, Sadie will say like, mom, there's a new exhibit at the Whitney, which means these people are eavesdropping. But if they're talking and we want to hear what they're saying, Ivy will say, um, Uncle Sylvester's coming to town. We don't have an Uncle Sylvester. But if Uncle Sylvester's coming to town, it means be quiet so we can eavesdrop on them. If someone has really bad plastic surgery, then they say, Olive left her Barbie doll at the house. And if there's like a crazy person screaming in the street, they'll say the merry-go-round is broken. And they'll just like <laughs> slip it in. And then I'll turn and be like, oh, my God, I'm on the floor. That's so fun. So it's like a codified inside joke. Yes. Language. Yes. Um, last time I saw you, I saw you at a lunch event. Yes. I think you gave a speech about how much you hated lunch. I hate lunch. You hated I, well, lunch. I, that's officially a luncheon. Yes. And a luncheon, the word is lunch plus eon because it takes <laughs> eons to finish. Right. So you had given that speech and I came to, to say, hi, um, how are you? And you said, actually, I had surgery two days ago. Two days. This sounds melodramatic, but I was like barely standing before you. Like instead, I, I thought I was going to die. You were actually giving a speech in front of several hundred people. I know, but I had committed to do this so long before. And when I they found these two lumps in my left boob, time was kind of of the essence. And there was talk about like, do we do a lumpectomy? Do we do? And I was like, no, I want a double mastectomy because we had ascertained that I had this breast cancer gene. It happened very fast. And when I looked at the calendar, I thought, well, it was two days after I'd come from the hospital. So it was four days in bed um, to recover. And I thought, I can roll my bag of bones two blocks away, do this thing, and then get back in bed, which is what I did. But those two hours were really hard. You made jokes. You you got up. You, you know, you impressed everyone. You were the MC of this event, right? Yeah. I never back out of things. And I had in the top five excuses probably ever. Truth is, I was in pain, but I would have been in pain at home too. It was almost like a distraction. You've had cancer before your most recent bout with cancer. Yes. I had melanoma at 34. And it was a really rare kind called amelanotic melanoma that's hard to find and diagnose, but it's the kind Bob Marley died of. And actually, it has nothing to do with the sun. I mean, I, everyone says, like, talk about sunblock because melanoma, but mine was right next to my vag. So they had to take all the lymph nodes out of my box, and I have a foot-long scar up there. So they actually took one pound of my leg out. So I do have, like, a weird profile. If you look in the mirror, it's like a gash. Um, but it was clean margins, and I was fine. And actually, the protocol shifted six months before I was diagnosed at Sloan Kettering. They used to have a full course of chemo, and they did away with it because it wasn't effective for everybody. So I didn't have to go through any chemo, but I was pretty lucky with so that. So you haven't had to do chemo either Never. Time. I've never done chemo. With my boob, I, they found two lumps at my routine mammogram, and they said, 
you know, we're going to have to do an MRI and a, and a needle biopsy. And they said, this is like a precancer and we have to just keep tracking you come back in three months for another breast MRI. So I did that. And then they said, okay, we're going to have you come in three months for another breast MRI. So I had three MRIs in six months. And while I was waiting between agonizing three-month appointments, I got a genetic counselor at Sloan Kettering who said that I have this breast cancer gene. So at that point, I was just like, take them off. I don't want to talk about lumpectomies. Let's just like rip this bandaid the fuck off. And everyone kept saying to me, oh, that must have been such a tough decision. And I was like, no, no, not at all. Because it's all over my family. My grandma died at 46. And I just, you know, I'm 44. I felt like a time bomb. So it was a no brainer. But yeah, totally cancer free. And what do you do to maintain your health now? Um, well, I get a physical every year, and I get mole checks twice a year because my melanoma did start with a mole, um, and that's pretty much it. I haven't even been to a dermatologist in a while. I really have to go. I would like to talk to somebody about, like, serums and shit. I can tell you about serums. Yeah, I think you, you guys know your stuff. So you have a very big Instagram following. What I, do you I do? I don't. You do? No, do you want to hear something funny? Mm-hmm. When I got canceled— Bravo was like, you have the lowest following of anybody. Like all the Real Housewives of America, I have 200,000 and they have 800,000. 200,000 is a lot. No, but they have 800,000. Yeah, but. And I was like, what? They're like, we're going to send you to a social media coach in Pasadena. This is, this happened to me. I had to spend hours sitting and they're like, you post at really inopportune times. You have to post between like 10 and 11.30, you have to post these things. Then I went to a Jane's Addiction con- concert at Brooklyn Bowl. And Dave Navarro does is really into suspension, like body suspension thing. And so these women were kind of dangling with these meat hooks. And I was like, whoa. And I filmed it. I came outside and I had nine missed calls being like, you have to delete it. It's like hurting women and it's sexist. And I was like, well, body modification is like a thing, and these women wanted to do it. No one's like putting girls on meat hooks. Like they are artists who do it. But anyway, I had to delete that. But I always got in trouble for my posts from Bravo because I had a low following, and I posted inappropriate things always with bad words. And they asked me to tone down the vulgarity. But what else did you learn? So 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. Um, in the morning, you had to, that's when 10:30 to or 10 to 11:30, I think. In the morning. Yeah, and then also they said that I don't engage with people on Twitter enough. And I've lost so many followers because of my anti-Trump stuff. I actually used to have a lot higher Instagram following. I don't know how many I lost, but I think like 10,000 or something. Because I think a lot of Republicans watched Dob Mom out. Do you think that's why the show got canceled? No. I think they got criticism for it. And I don't know if, but I don't think they lost advertisers for it. I think it was just really expensive. They said it was with marketing and everything, it's $1.2 million an episode, and that was five times the budget for a one-hour reality show. So it's just paying a writer's room and actors and set designers, and it was all union, and it's really expensive to shoot in New York. How do you talk to your kids about social media? We talk about it a lot. Um, I think that the pernicious side to Instagram is that you have to really inculcate a 15-year-old girl that these girls who are posing in a bikini in the Bahamas maybe took 30 attempts at that selfie, and it's been face-tuned and body-tuned and filtered. So that girl maybe doesn't have that body and that it's artifice and it's a projection of perfection. It's what Chris Rock always said, like, it's not them. It's the ambassador of them. It's their best version of them that is an envoy 
facing outward to the world. So I think they get that now. Um, I think a lot of that is projecting perfection. I try to get them to not put things that are necessarily, I mean, I follow all my kids and their finstas, but I, I said like, don't put the picture that's this, you know, architected, art directed thing. Just do a moment. Are they ever embarrassed by you? They were embarrassed when I had my butt out in the show, not because of my cellulite. They were just like, oh, mom, your butt's out. It was the episode where I lose my anal virginity and I put a bow on my crack, butt crack, not vag. But um, they were like mortified, but then they kind of laughed. And overall, I was like, would you rather I didn't have a show? And they were like, no, we'd rather you have a show. That We're proud of you and we think it's fun. But they were like, that was super embarrassing. Also, there was like a makeout scene where I'm like rolling around with Andy Buckley in the show and they're like, ah, cringe, you know, like that kind of stuff. But generally they don't really get embarrassed by me. They do tell me, um, one more social media thing is they do tell me when I'm over posting. So like I had a a phase where I'm like, this Instagram's really fun. And I would put something every day and Sadie would be like, just dial it back a little. You're seeming thirsty. Good advice from Sadie. Yeah. Yeah. Sadie's like much better at social media than I am because she – she absorbs, she follows more people. How do you talk to your kids about things that are uncomfortable? I am so weird. I never get uncomfortable. I think like my mom and dad would tiptoe around certain things like sex or, you know, they were very concerned with what was appropriate. And I just kind of lay it all out there. And I, I think when you kick the door down and talk about your own shit, they feel a little safer about it. And you just have a two-way street of honesty. But so many parents lie about what they did and then expect the kids to divulge everything. And I just don't know that they'll always be successful with that. What do you think people don't understand about a job that seems incredibly glamorous like yours? Um, I think it is inc- incredibly glamorous. I really did. I was tired as fuck because it was sometimes 17 hours and especially standing in stilettos. But I felt like it was, I was pinching myself the entire time. I never took it for granted. Even when I was about to draw breath to complain about my stilettos, I was like, you get to make a TV show. I almost felt like our show was so weird that it was like, while nobody was watching, I get to just make this TV show. Like I, I like stole cameras and just did it. It's so, it still feels weird that it even got to happen. And then when other people complain about it, I just want to smash them. <laughs> That's it for this week's show. Molly, we'll see you next Tuesday. This episode was produced by Nazanin Rafsanjani, Olivia Natt, Sarah McVie, and Kimmy Regler. Mixing by Haley Shaw, Dara Hirsch, and Keegan Zong. Our theme song is 9 to 5 by the one and only Dolly Parton. The Cut on Tuesdays is a production of Gimlet Media and The Cut. This episode of The Cut on Tuesdays is brought to you by Chanel. 